trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a gathering place for people who are unafraid to engage in wrong think. Oh, I know. It sounds like a pretty subversive thing, right? There ought to be a law, right? (laughs) Nope. It's a uh, survival skill that's absolutely necessary when you live in a time of almost universal deception, misinformation, and, of course, official narrative that uh, may or may not actually reflect anything to do with reality. I'm not here with all the answers. I'm not that smart of a guy. I'm just a truth seeker like you, and uh, and I have... uh, developed and am currently developing a platform from which to uh, seek out and speak and direct, you know, others to who are truth seekers, you know, to find some, some points of view that will actually shed some light on what the world really is like. But more importantly, I'm here to encourage you to step up and embrace what you can do to make the world a better place. Okay, I'm going to get this right out on the table, right at, right at the very beginning. And, and if it scares you away, that's okay because a lot of people aren't ready for this. I believe that you came into this world and every other individual came into this world with a purpose, a mission, if you will, something that is uniquely yours, a way in which you alone can change the world. And I think this is true of everybody. And I mean this from the highest and mightiest right down to what we would consider the lowliest among us. Even those who seemingly don't have a lot to offer still can change the world in positive ways. How do I know this? Well, I don't know. You ever seen what a family is like when they welcome a new baby into their midst? How much value is that baby providing, right? They're not pulling their weight exactly. They're consuming. They're costing money. They're, you know, they're taking time and attention. They're taking us away from valuable things like our careers. But how many people do you know would argue that that child isn't among the most precious thing in their life, the most precious, you know, presence in their life. Hopefully that makes sense. Some things are really, truly of importance, lasting importance. The quicker we can find those things and get to work on them in our own individual way, the happier we are. You know, I don't want this to sound like a flex. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, my life is so great. Hey, here, let me show you my Instagram. Here's a meal I had. My my point here is simply something happens when you take on a life of purpose, when you set out to discover and then act on what your unique individual calling or purpose may be. It adds depth to everything in life. Every relationship in your life takes on a little bit more meaning. In fact, you know, I hear I'll really freak out. You will find that there are people whose path intersects with your own, not just out of some random chance. It's not like, oh, yeah, God rolled the dice and huh, look who popped up. But it's almost like all these moving parts have the ability to come together at exactly the right time, the right place, and for the right reasons. And I get it. Not everybody agrees with this. Not everybody is going to see it that way. It took me a long time to start to recognize these kinds of patterns, but I got to say, once once I did, my life has never been the same. 
And that doesn't mean it's been easy and I've just made millions of bucks. In fact, I'm talking to you from my, uh, you know, uh, cabana in uh, Cabo San Lucas. And nope, no. Life is still a struggle. And, and I think it's, it's meant to be, as Jordan Peterson would say, you know, pick up your sacrifice and, and carry it forward and, you know, carry on. But I also know there are people out there who, who see what's happening, and rather than feeling helpless, they have a sense that there's something I could be doing. I'm just here to assure you, you are one of those people. And if it doesn't scare you too bad, I'll tell you this. God has his finger on you. Not because he's keeping track of you and you're a naughty child and you know he's like some spiritual motorcycle cop clocking your sins and you know waiting to, to pull you over and punish you. There's something that you can do and you alone can accomplish and when you do it, it will bring you more happiness and more satisfaction than, than any amount of you know honors and recognition and fame and fortune. Turns out fame and fortune are actually kind of fleeting things. They don't always work out well for people. In fact, um, what was I reading just earlier this week? I saw this article about a guy who, I think he won the lottery and like $100 million. This was a couple of decades ago. $100 million bucks. Now, I don't know if that was the lump sum payout, but I'm telling you, even a million bucks would make a huge difference in my life. But $100 million bucks. You know, and, and initially this guy was like, oh, well, you know, he, he paid off his house, took his family on a cruise and and donated to charities and so forth. But he also found out that there are some not so great things that come along with all that wealth. Number one, family and friends from f- as far back as, you know, he could remember them started to come out of the woodwork. And of course, everybody had a sad story. Oh, you know, I'm just kind of down on my luck or mama's been sick or whatever. But he was constantly being followed by people, asked for money, harassed for money, to the point that he actually had to change his phone number. After a year, he and his wife separated, and ultimately, I believe he ended up taking his own life. And one of the things that he told his financial advisors, he said, winning this lottery is the worst thing that ever happened to me. That kind of sounds counterintuitive, right? You would think, oh, the, you know, if I could just, if I just had this much money, it would just solve all these problems. But wealth isn't necessarily the, the solution. Now, look, I'm, I'm not saying if somebody, you know, handed me a six-figure check that I wouldn't be like, wow, yes, thank you. But that's not what life is about. It's not about accumulating the most toys or the most honors or building this monument to yourself. It's about discovering who you are and making the difference you were born to make. And I get it. That sounds very lofty, very metaphysical. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of out there. Nonetheless, I believe it's true. And right now, as I look around us, and, and I see some of the challenges that we're facing. You know, economically, there's a lot of uncertainty. Politically, where do you begin? <laughs> it's getting crazier by the minute. But that doesn't mean that where you are <clears throat> or where you're standing at this moment you couldn't be improving the world in measurable ways. And by, by the way, measurable, I know that's kind of a relative term. Well, who's going to be able to measure it? Some you know, physicist who's working at the subatomic level to, to make these measurements and theoretical you know, uh, evaluations? No. I'm just saying that if you're tapped into your purpose, you can't help 
but become a source of illumination for the people around you. Maybe a lot of people, maybe your circle of influence is, is very large, maybe it's very small. But I have this hunch, and you know, one day I'll find out if I was right or wrong about this. I have a hunch that all of us are going to be very shocked at some point to realize how far-reaching our impact actually was. And, and I mean this both for good and for bad. I think back to a class reunion that I attended. Uh, oh, this would have been my 20-year class reunion. Holy cow, that was 19 years ago. Oh, I saw kids that I had attended, kids. I saw adults with whom I had attended junior high and high school as kids. I saw people that uh, I had labeled People who had labeled me, because we were all into the whole label maker thing. Oh, yeah, well, you're this and you're that. But the craziest thing was I saw the impact that some of those labels had even 20 years later, even 20 years after we were out of high school. You could still see that there, some, some people carried, you know, the pain of those labels. And as I talked to them, you know, I, I could see both the people that I had labeled as well as those who had labeled me, I could see the, the, the pain and the regret of, I wish I hadn't treated you like that. Now, maturity has a lot to do with, you know, outgrowing that need to, I'm better than you, that whole status-driven quest. But I'm just going to put this out there, and I'm, I'm off on a complete tangent from what I had planned to share with you for this segment. But the tangent leads me to this. If you're looking for purpose, if you're looking for meaning, in your life, you start by looking in the mirror and maybe asking yourself the question, is there something that I could and should be doing? Now, I'm going to caution you. If you're a religious person and you uh, take a question like that to God and you say, God, I feel like there's something more I should be doing, but I'm not sure what it is. Could you show me? You had better be prepared for changes to start happening in your life. If you really mean it when you ask, could you show me what I'm supposed to be doing? Because chances are, you're comfortable where you are. Most of us like to live our lives in the comfort zone. I know I do. But every single time that I've ever had that question and, and had it strong enough in my heart that I was willing to basically go to my creator and say, okay, I have a hunch that there's something more you would like me to do, but I don't know what it is. Can you tell me? I get a shove. Now, it's a gentle shove, but it's a shove nonetheless. And out of the comfort zone I go, and the growth cycle begins anew. It's becoming exhilarating, but I'll tell you, that first couple of times, yeah, it was, it was pretty scary. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. <laughs> I'm sorry. I really did go off on a rant for that uh, that first segment, and I don't often do this. I, I plan it out. I've got my show notes here. and you know, In fact, if you want to access the show notes, you can go to thebrianhydeshow.com. Uh, links that will take you to not only you know, the articles I talk about, but also to my sponsors. And, uh, oh, by the way, I do want to welcome a new sponsor, Ironsight Brewing Company. This is my friend, John Harvey. He's the host of the Modern Conservative Podcast, and he has started his own subscription coffee company. Now, if you're a coffee drinker, I know that that's, that's a pretty important part of your day. 
go to my web go to my website thebrianheidshow.com you'll find a sponsors link that you can click on that will take you to Ironsight Brewing Company also if you go to my show notes it's there at the bottom of the page but check it out I think you'll like what you see and and I'm excited for John wish him the very very best in in you know launching this this new business and um, it's it's quite an industry I got quite an education in my conversation with him. So now that uh, I'm, I'm kind of steering myself back away from my rant, I, I know it's it's a weird thing to do, but sometimes I'll just go with it on the assumption that somebody somewhere needed to hear that. If it wasn't you, I apologize, but let's let's move on to something else here. I noticed that uh, demand for COVID shops has shots rather has dropped off steep, steeply. You think about what it was like two years ago. And the pressure was so intense about the unvaccinated, but not so much now. People have had time to look and see what's uh, what's going on. And there was a fascinating article from the Brownstone Institute asking the question, had you known, would you have taken the jab? They say, when would, would 92% of adult Americans have gotten a COVID shot had they known the vaccines offered only a 0.85% reduction in risk? Would young men have taken the jab if they had known it did not prevent transmission? The article says Americans came to understand that the media campaigns supporting the shots were fraudulent. The touted benefits preventing infection and transmission, they were lies. And in response, fewer than one in five Americans elected to receive boosters despite multi-billion dollar propaganda campaigns. And I'm just going to add this as an aside, helped out in no small part, by an American news media, which is intensely propped up by Big Pharma. If you can suppress your gag reflex long enough, I would say turn on the nightly news any night and just watch for five minutes. Watch how many drug commercials come up in that space of time. Now, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has brought a suit to bring accountability for the fraud that resulted in record profits for the pharmaceutical industry. Last week, he filed a complaint alleging that Pfizer misrepresented COVID vaccine efficacy and conspired to censor public discourse in violation of Texas's Deceptive Trade Practices Act. So while Big Pharma enjoys immense government-provided insulation from legal liability for vaccine injuries, rather, it cannot lie in order to promote those products. It sounds like someone's calling him on it. Paxton alleges that the $75 billion Pfizer has raked in through the sales of COVID vaccines were the direct and proximate result of the company's deceit. Now, the Deceptive Trade and Trade Practices Act requires Paxton to prove two questions in order to succeed in his case. First, he must establish that the company lied or failed to disclose known information concerning its COVID vaccine. Second, he must prove that the company's fraud was designed to promote sales of the shots. Now, the Brownstone Institute previously analyzed the applicability of DTPA against Moderna. Now, Paxson's lawsuit is threatening Pfizer with fines of $10 million, as well as awards of restitution, damages, or civil penalties. Paxton's case argues that Pfizer deceived the public on three issues— First, the efficacy of the vaccine. Second, whether the shots reduced the risk of transmission. And third, the company's efforts to censor persons who threatened to disseminate the truth. In each instance, the company skewed the public debate in order to induce Americans to take its shots. 
The efforts stripped us of the right to informed consent, deceiving us on purported benefits while hiding established risks. And from here, the article goes through and breaks down, you know, each one of these uh, reasons why Texas's attorney general is going after Pfizer, starting with efficacy, going through transmission, and then uh, looking at censorship. I'm going to let you discover those for your, yourself because it's, it's a fairly lengthy article. But here's the conclusion. It's a rare opportunity to strike back. And to this point, the Brownstone Institute says, victories against the hegemon that emerged in 2020 have been defensive in nature. Groups have fended off vaccine mandates. States have resisted calls for renewed lockdowns. Journalists have begun to expose the corruption that shattered Western civilization. These efforts, though important, have failed to bring accountability against those who usurped our civil liberties and pillaged the national treasury. Paxton's suit strikes at the heart of the corruption behind the COVID regime. How their success required mass deception and their profits depended on lies. Though $10 million in fines is little compared to the $75 billion in revenue that Pfizer raked in just from the vaccines alone, the suit signifies that the resistance is at last on the offensive. Now, of course, Big Pharma sees this as a grave threat. Its lobbying forces led a failed impeachment effort against Paxton this fall. They threw him out of his office and disabled his ability to do the job that voters sent him to do. Turning up nothing, the legislature rejected the entire drama. Now he's back and working, and this is the result, accountability at last. The steep drop in demand for COVID shops, shots rather reveals how Pfizer depended upon fraud to promote their most lucrative product. But once Americans knew the truth, demand dropped by over 75%. Now Paxton's suit brings that fraud to trial. I don't want to make it sound like, oh boy, I'm just reveling in the idea that, ha ha, you know, shot and fraud, they're, they're suffering now and I'm glad for it. I'm not glad for anybody's suffering, but I'm relieved to see that uh, someone is taking seriously the fact that we were pressured, I, I still maintain that whoever called this the greatest psyop in the history of the world probably hit the nail on the head. In my lifetime, and granted, I'm you know still a shade under 60 years old, but I have never seen a more concerted effort to try to, um, I was going to say persuade, but persuade is not the, the term, coerce people into doing something against their best judgment and without their informed consent, something medical, something permanent. And although there are still news organizations that try to maintain the facade, oh, it's still good, you should get your boosters right now, and remember, get your kids boosted too. It's very comforting to see that a lot of people are calling BS and saying, I'm not going to go along with that. Look, I hope you were one of the people who was able to resist all of that pressure. So many people were unable to, to withstand that onslaught. And as we talked about earlier, there was a calculus that went into that. Paul, Rosen, Paul Rosenberg's article about the, the COVID calculus and the risk of, okay, but there's a chance that this vaccine might injure me or it might cause, you know, problems. But weighed against the certainty that I'm going to lose my job, I may lose my marriage, my family and friends are going to hate me or, you know, they're going to turn against me. People took, you know, the path with, with the lesser risk, at least according to, to how they evaluated it. I just want to know what is going to happen in terms of accountability for the people, either in 
power or just, you know, in media or <clears throat> for that matter, who uh, who just bent the knee and went along with it and, and were so vicious, ready to lock people up, ready to put them into camps, ready to take away their children. We saw one of the ugliest sides of humanity that has been seen in human history. And granted, you know, it wasn't exactly rounding people up and, you know, carting them off, you know, to the crematoriums. But that's the direction that kind of thinking goes. If you can justify all of the indignities and all of the intrusions on people's privacy and their personal autonomy that we saw throughout the COVID pandemic, you have to know it's going in the very same direction, that somebody needs to call the shots here. And uh, that may well include, you know, liquidating the undesirables to make sure that they're not interfering with our oh-so-well-laid plans. Sorry, but that's some straight-up wickedness right there. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. One of my favorite uh, resources for wrong thinkers is lewrockwell.com. That's L-E-W-Rockwell.com. I have been going to this site, I'm guessing, for the better part of 25 years. Yeah, the internet was young when I discovered this news aggregator site, and it has been such an incredible source of information. By the way, that doesn't mean I agree with everything I read on there, but I'm just saying there is such a great collection of articles and viewpoints and every so often, you just get this great gem. Here's one from Gary D. Barnett that really struck a nerve with me. Demanding solutions from others to cure the world's ills is cowardice in the presence of tyranny. Now, here's what he means by this. He actually starts with, with a quote from Frank Herbert, uh, God Emperor of Dune. Frank Herbert wrote, Most civilization is based on cowardice. It's so easy to civilize by teaching cowardice. You water down the standards, which would lead to bravery. You restrain the, the you restrain the will. You d- regulate the appetites. You fence in the horizons. You make a law for every movement. You deny the existence of chaos. You even teach children to breathe slowly. You tame. Now, Gary Barnett says the seemingly easy path to dependency is thought to be a way to hide from reality, but in essence, it's the epitome of cowardice. This new world order being sought is based on dependency for a reason, because the more dependent any society is as a whole on others or the state apparatus, the easier the masses are to control. Dependence breeds laziness, irresponsibility, and indifference, and those pitiful traits are fatal to the idea of freedom. These attitudes are greatly enhanced when a victim mindset is present, as has happened with the collective horde that make up the bulk of this population, and most of the rest of the Western world as well. Now, what's missed by the vast crowd of plebeians is that this gross dependency and cowardice has been purposely constructed by the ruling class through long-term brainwashing and indoctrination over decades. This plot has been successful in turning a more responsible, independent, vital, and courageous people into groups of victims awaiting a savior who will never appear. This is heavily manifested now in the in the ludicrous behavior norm of the herd demanding solutions from others for their self-created plight of voluntary enslavement. 
They had no courage or desire to help themselves, but they expect those who fearlessly identify and expose the basis of tyranny and the totalitarian nature of the state they created and support to fix everything for them or give them the easy solution to their self-imposed problems. Any critical thought whatsoever would reveal the idiocy of such an impossible demand. But when so many expect to be taken care of instead of being responsible for their own lives, the only result is a pathetic and useless societal mob awaiting their next order to obey. They have not the guts or brains to figure out that in order to save themselves from the abuse they voluntarily accepted and restore the freedom they've abandoned, they have to help themselves instead of expecting others to do it for them. I'm going to pause here for just a moment because I want to break this down a little bit. You understand that that means the primary responsibility for fixing what is wrong in your life starts with you. I know, that's that should be pretty self-evident. Most people will be, well, of course, Captain Obvious, thank you so much for, for telling us that. But look around us. How often do you see people taking that approach? It's not real often, is it? And in fact, it's more common if you point out a problem. If you say, uh, you know, uh, for instance, these red flag laws, well, we're just keeping guns out of the hands of people who might be a danger to society. I mean, on the surface, well, it sounds reasonable. We don't want to have, you know, people with guns out there being a problem to society. But if you say, hold up there, friend, you're denying due process. In other words, you're, you're predicating taking someone's right to keep and bear arms based on a hunch that they might do something at some point, somewhere, sometime down the road, as opposed to we're holding them accountable for actions that they've already done while affording them due process, because that is the proper way to approach such things. In this way, only the people who actually have done something that resulted in harm or a victim or some kind of measurable damage are being held accountable. Everybody else is left alone. See, the approach of the red flag law is, well, we presume that everybody is a potential criminal. And then we just find the excuse to get the state in their lives and take away an essential right preemptively. Which means we have to take away everyone's freedom preemptively or have the capacity and the, uh, the ability to take away everybody's freedom preemptively in case something bad happens. Now, if you say that's not a good idea, one of the first things you're going to hear is, oh, yeah, well, what's your solution? Come on. Give me a solution. As if you were the one who created the problem. So first of all, you need to understand, just because you point out a problem or you point out, hey, this could be a complication or that doesn't look quite right, that doesn't mean you bear personal responsibility for fixing it. Well, you noticed it, so now you have to fix it. So it's okay to uh, to defer or to deflect that, uh, that assignment of responsibility that someone is trying to give you. Frankly, it takes some courage to be willing to point out some of these things because people have been trained to react, you know, uh, angrily, sometimes violently, to anybody who questions the orthodoxy of the state. Now, Gary Barnett says, cowardice is common, but much, must, uh, but much misunderstood. And he says, in many cases, false courage and bravery, while seen as heroic, are actually cowardice in disguise. He says, we live in an era of opposites, where almost everything is reversed, where inversion of reality is the norm. What's at the root of these inversions is mass confusion as to the actual reality as opposed to perceived reality. 
It comes down to a moral question. For example, refusing to support nation-state aggression by not accepting orders to war against and kill innocents is seen by many as cowardice, whereas the military killing of innocents on orders is seen as brave and heroic. This is evidenced by the military worship that grips this nationalistic, war-loving country. And this is, of course, backward, for it takes much more courage to combat and fight against state evil than to participate in it. That's a good point. Those who remain silent in the face of terror, wielded by their claimed country or government, or who want others to take the risk of speaking out and curing the world's ills for them, exacerbate greatly the massive problems of brutal rule. They tend to blame any attempting to expose the tyranny and totalitarian nature of our existence because they want an easy, although impossible remedy that does not include them helping themselves. They want someone else to do the work necessary and they're not willing to take any risk that may put them in physical or psychological jeopardy in order to fix what they themselves created. They blame and criticize instead of using the information given them to increase their knowledge of the horrors they hide from and ignore. And he offers some some pretty stout medicine for, you know, you've got to decide for yourself. You have to rebel within yourself and not rely on any other to give you something that they don't have the power to give you. He says, if you continue to do nothing to help yourselves, what will be your fate? If you continue to worship the state and to participate in its worthless elections, that meant only that, or its worthless elections meant only the choosing of your master. How many lords will rule over you? By the way, that's something I do think about as I see people really getting excited. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to electioneer. And I wonder how many people stop and think, why am I clamoring so hard to make sure that this person is going to be my master and not that person? Where are the people saying, I don't need a master? Or the guy who thinks he's my master? You know, <laughs> sorry, but uh, unless he's coming in the clouds with angels and glory, he, that, that is not my master. That's just a man. Gary Barnett says, if you continue to support government's terroristic policies here and around the world, where does the terror end? If you cower behind a curtain of ignorance, hoping for a magic answer, what will happen to the future of your children and grandchildren due to your cowardice? If you're not willing to do anything to take and secure your own freedom, why would you expect any other to do it for you? See, the results of this immoral behavior are misery and suffering. It's economic ruination, the confiscation of all property. It's violence, torture, and maiming. It's democide and genocide, which are both being aggressively pursued here and around the world every single day. It's state-manufactured sickness, war, famine, the herding of sheep together for slaughter to bring about mass depopulation. It's hideous human lockdowns, concentration camps, 15-minute cities, and transhuman technocratic control. If you acknowledge the truth, he says, you must act on it. If you hide from the truth and take the easy path, you will suffer great consequences at every level of your being. There are a few thousand evil monsters who've designed this plan and now rule over you. There are 335 million people here in the U.S. and 8 billion people here on Earth who are all being controlled by these few thousand psychopaths. How can that be? How can so many be ruled by so few? If you answer this question honestly, he says, be prepared to come out of hiding, take a stand, and act like a free man instead of a slave. And he ends with a quote from James Clemens from Hinterland. But often life asks much of you, and you either honor life by answering with all your heart, or you cower your way into your grave. 
I don't know why, but I thought about this. Uh, I thought about Ammon Bundy as I was reading this, just because some of his detractors, he's such a coward, he ran away from the state of Idaho. And I think to myself, what have they done that even approaches the kind of courage that he's shown in standing up for what's right? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I've got three articles I want to touch on in this final segment, and I, I hope you will enjoy them. You'll find links to all of them in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, I'm a dedicated carnivore, and I have been, well, as, as long as I can remember. I was very proud, by the way, my, my oldest daughter. I remember when she was, she got her teeth early, like, you know, six, eight months, she started getting teeth coming in. We were like, holy cow. All right, she's going to be a bottle baby soon. But I remember her watching me when she was probably about six months old, still too young, for solid food, but she was watching me eat a steak. And I think now, what a, what a horrible, cruel dad I was to sit there and eat a steak in front of this little this little infant. But you could just see in her eyes that, oh, she wanted a bite so bad. And I was proud of her. I was like, yes, yes, this is my child. My child is a carnivore as, as, <laughs> as much as her dad is. Nonetheless, we have this incredible push to, uh, to make us embrace plant-based meat substitutes. I see these every so often while I'm grocery shopping, and one of the things I've noticed is, you know, when it's whenever a hurricane comes along or some kind of natural disaster or some big storm, oh, there's a big blizzard bearing down, you know, and the people go into the supermarkets and basically buy up everything they have to, to you know, store just in case. Why is it always the uh, plant-based meat substitutes? <laughs> there's still plenty of them if you want them. Nobody really seems to gravitate toward them. So I'm including an article in today's show notes from Philip W. Magnus and Peter C. Earle, both writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. Fake meat, is it more entree or agenda? And by the way, I think they take a very fair-handed approach to this because uh, they, they're, they're talking about how there, there's a push you know, to try to normalize and make this the thing, you know, this is what we need to do. No more cows. We need to grow meat in a lab or we need to make it out of, uh, out of plant-based stuff. And, and the point here is the plant-based alternatives industry is facing its first true market test. And it's doing poorly. Now, the consumer base for fake meat, it's not zero. There are people who actually prefer this and, and you know, respect to them if, if that's their choice. But... The problem here is it's a much smaller market than the producers perceived. And the result is a plant-based alternative food industry that has far outpaced the interest in what it had to offer. And now they're seeing a rapid contraction as consumer sovereignty corrects all those misread signals. Wonderful article, very informative, probably best enjoyed while you're eating a hamburger. I don't know. That's just a, just a hunch on my part. I'm, I'm no expert. I'm going to include also an article from Alexander Markovsky. This is strictly for historical perspective. When we don't know our history, we are little more than children who depend on others to tell us what came before. I think it was Cicero who talked about uh, that's what happens when you don't know your history. So I'm including an article from Alexander Markovsky. This was published on AmericanThinker.com about how the American Republic was lost. This is one of the best, most concise civics lessons that I've seen in a long time. Explaining the proper flow of power, 
the proper uh, establishment of sovereignty? Where does that power originate? In fact, where's the resting place for that authority? And maybe it'll surprise some people to learn that, uh, what, it's not government? Nope. Power starts with the people, which means it starts with the individual, which starts with your natural rights. He does a beautiful job of explaining it and also explaining how the republic given to us by the founders has been corrupted, co-opted, and distorted into something that uh, even the founders would say, wait a minute, what? what is this you're doing today compared to the instructions, the written instructions, the rules we gave you? I don't know if it'll make you feel better, but you will definitely be better informed for having taken a look at Alexander Markovsky's article. All right, article of the day. This is the one I want to spend a little bit of time um, examining. This is from Patrick Carroll from the Foundation for Economic Education. And look, I'm not trying to be a gloom and doomer here, but the whole wars and rumors of wars thing seems to be playing out uh, pretty out in the open today. It's a reality of our time. Patrick Carroll has three principles for libertarians and other lovers of freedom in times of war. And I'll just give you the quick thumbnail sketch here is siding with freedom means you side with peaceful individuals, not nation states. He says the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas seems to have brought out the worst in many people on both sides. Not only in the sense of bloodthirst, of which there is sadly plenty, but also in the sense of letting emotion get in the way of clear moral reasoning. And to a lesser extent, he says the Russia-Ukraine conflict has led to similar results. From the depths of social media to the heights of the ivory tower, the takes people have proffered on these conflicts have been straight up wild. Even those who are otherwise quite good on a lot of issues seem to have left their moral compass at the door when weighing in on this topic. So, in the midst of this deluge of bad takes, he says libertarians have an opportunity and a duty to bring genuine moral clarity to bear on these issues. If we can be more cool-headed and principled, especially in times of crisis, we will be that much more respected and that much closer to winning the hearts and minds of the masses. But what does genuine moral clarity look like when it comes to war? What is the libertarian take? So here are three principles to help libertarians navigate this issue. Number one, he says, refuse to ignore, condone, or justify the slaughter of, his, of innocent people. And he says, look, there's a lot of anger surrounding this conflict. In fact, outrage is fully warranted. Thousands of innocent people are being killed, and that should make our blood boil. There are great injustices taking place, and those wrongs need to be righted. But... There are better and worse ways to respond. And sadly, both sides in the Israel-Hamas conflict have been responding to the injustices committed against their people by committing injustices of their own. If you want a better solution, he says we need to begin by acknowledging that both sides in this conflict are committing acts of evil, such as killing innocent civilians. But even proving that is, uh, but even that, he says, is proving to be a point of contention. Secondly, he recommends you stand with individuals, not collectives. And I think this is probably some of the soundest advice you're going to hear today. All the conflicts that you see playing out around you in the world, whether it's, you know, whether we should put a crosswalk in here or whether we should, you know, nuke this country or that country, it always comes down to the individual versus the collective. And unfortunately, 
Collectivist rhetoric dominates most of these discussions, like when entire people groups get called aggressors or defenders. So what is the individualist alternative? He says, well, simply put, we condemn the aggressors, that is, the individuals who are committing identifiable acts of aggression, whether on behalf of a government, terrorist organization, or other military group. His point is, libertarians don't stand with one side of these conflicts over another. And they certainly don't accept the false dichotomy that they're being offered by people like you know Ben Shapiro. We do not stand with nations, tribes, or governments. Rather, we stand with the innocent civilians on all sides against those who seek to control them. That's a great way to look at it. When two mafias battle for territory in a city, neither of them are innocent defenders. Neither deserve our support. And he says, I would submit that the only difference between a mafia and a state is that the latter is perceived to be legitimate. Finally, champion non-interventionist foreign policy. Now, a lot of folks will say, well, you want to be an isolationist? Look, isolationism taken to its logical extreme is North Korea. We are in no danger of locking ourselves off from the world with, you know, with guards on our borders and machine gun towers and minefields and a demilitarized zone, you know, preventing people from from escaping. And by the way, that's one of the arguments I have against building border walls and all these fortifications. We've got to keep the people out, you know, we're trying to come in here. And it's like, yeah, but depending on which way the guards on top of that wall are facing, it's either keeping them out or it's keeping you in. I don't want to live in a prison. But the, the point here that... To, that he makes as far as non-interventionism. Patrick Carroll says America has a long history of non-interventionism and for good reason, because interventionism has many issues associated with it. First, when a government intervenes in a foreign conflict on behalf of one side, millions of taxpayers are forced to fund an initiative they deeply disagree with, and that's unjust. They're being coerced into funding a cause against their will. Now, we saw this with Ukraine. If you if you personally want to get involved, you should feel free to do so out of your own pocket. How much money have we sent to Ukraine? How many weapons and so forth? How much money do we send to Israel? There's a path to peace. And Patrick Carroll says that path to peace lies in embracing the freedom philosophy and applying it correctly. He says, only when we do that will we finally end the cycle of unjust violence and leave behind the suffering, death, and destruction that's become too familiar all around the world. This is really a marvelous marvelous article, and he actually links to a couple of other articles toward the end of, of this one. Three Principles for Libertarians in Times of War. We do live in interesting times, don't we? I'm just grateful that uh, we still have the ability to speak mostly freely and try to bring some sense and reason to the whole situation. This is The Brian Hyde Show.